Jesus, we thank you that you are the resurrection and the life. We thank you that you are alive. And we thank you that as we trust in you, we can know your life. And we pray this evening that you'd help us. Holy Spirit, that you would uh, open our hearts to understand things of you, Jesus, that are beyond our normal understanding. Not to make us clever, but to bring us to the feet of Jesus, that we may worship him. Amen. Great. Well, it's good um, to be here. We're continuing to think through uh, about the resurrection. We've just celebrated it at Easter, um, this wonderful moment that we remember this man, Jesus, who many claim to be God, dying on a cross and rising to life. But the question I want to ask is a very simple one. So what? So what? 2,000 odd years ago, this guy dies on a cross. Some people said he came back to life. What does it mean for you and me? How do we take that experience of Easter, the good news that it brings to those who believe, with the promise that the power that raised Jesus from the grave is now alive in us who believe? How can that be reconciled with the reality of what we see in our day-to-day life? I don't know about you, but I see around me a reality that sees, I don't know, parents splitting up. Sickness seemingly triumph. Cancer ride roughshod over our plans and our hopes. And ultimately, I see us on a path that takes us to death. It seems as though death is the end, death is the destination. So what does the Easter message of the empty tomb really say into all this? Well, today we're not going to be starting at those um, amazing stories from the gospel that tell us of the resurrection. We're going to be starting from the book of Job. And it's one of the oldest books in the Bible, way before Jesus was around. And its theme is age-old too. Its theme, its question is all about suffering and the inevitability of death for every human being. What do you make of some of the recent news events in our world? How do you reconcile them with the notion of a loving God? So many deaths. A policeman doing his duty at the Houses of Parliament. Another policeman on the Champs-Élysées in France. Another bomb in Syria. And children and the innocent are killed. Why are these seemingly good people subject to seemingly pointless and terrible loss? Let's be honest, it seems amazingly unfair. Just look at the world and you see that the mantra that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people, simply isn't true. Good things happen to bad people, and bad things happen to good people. What kind of God runs a world like that? 
Well, the Easter message is good news, but I want us to consider whether it's more than just a set of ideas or, or beliefs or even facts that we hold to. How does Easter play into our emotions and our feelings that we have about life and about God? Because we, we have emotions, don't we? And we often react on the basis of our emotions. And if there's one figure in the Bible who's in touch with his emotions, it's Job. Job is staggeringly honest. He knows what people say, actually say and think. Not just what they might say publicly, you know, the, the public face in church, but what they might say behind closed doors, through tears, in whispers, in the, in the silent, unspoken voices of our minds. Job is a gem because it's both about people and for people who know the pain of suffering. And I think it's particularly important when the church across the world is being seduced by a gospel that says if we just trust God, then everything will be fine. Trust God for riches and they're going to come. Trust God for health and well-being and that will be yours. Trust God for success and it will be yours. Trust God for a marriage partner or children or whatever it is that you're longing for and it will come. That's just not true. The gospel is not about getting what we want. It's not about prosperity and feeling good. Job points us to a completely different way. He points us to a reality where God is sovereign, where he's in control, but where the reality of life just isn't neat. Where suffering is what we experience. Where questions can't be answered in a neat tip box way where there's complexity in friendships, where doubt sits alongside certainty, where answers don't necessarily come, and when suffering and pain and isolation is real. Today we're flying right into the middle of Job, Job 19. And in it there's this amazing claim that, um, that, that Paul read earlier on, I know that my Redeemer lives. And that chimes with the Easter message, doesn't it? I know that my Redeemer lives. But before we get there, before we get to that amazing truth, we have to see the reality of the world in which Job lives and the reality of our world too. And so Pamela's going to come and she's going to read that passage to us of Job 19. And you're going to see that it's incredibly emotive and it's incredibly painful. Because we have to go through that pain and see it before we get to the good news that our Redeemer lives. So listen to these amazing words from Job 19. So Job replied, How long will you torment me and crush me with words? Ten times now you have reproached me. Shamelessly you attack me. If it's true that I've gone astray, my error remains my concern alone. If indeed you would exalt yourselves above me and use my humiliation against me, then know that God has wronged me and drawn his net around me. Though I cry, I've been wronged, I get no response. Though I call for help, there's no justice. He has blocked my way so that I cannot pass. 
He has shrouded my paths in darkness. He has stripped me of my honour and removed the crown from my head. He tears me down on every side till I'm gone. He uproots my hope like a tree. His anger burns against me. He counts me among his enemies. His troops advance in force. They build a siege ramp against me and encamp around my tent. He has alienated my brothers from me. My acquaintances are completely estranged from me. My kinsmen have gone away. My friends have forgotten me. My guests, my maidservants, count me a stranger. They look upon me as an alien. I summon my servant, but he doesn't answer, though I beg him with my own mouth. My breath is offensive to my wife. I'm loathsome to my own brothers. Even the little boys scorn me. When I appear, they ridicule me. All my intimate friends detest me. Those I love have turned against me. I'm nothing but skin and bones. I've escaped by only the skin of my teeth. Have pity on me, my friends. Have pity, for the hand of God has struck me. And why do you pursue me as God does? Will you never get enough of my flesh? Oh, that my words were recorded, that they were written on a scroll, that they were inscribed with an iron tool on lead, engraved in rock forever. I know that my Redeemer lives, and that in the end he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him, With my own eyes, I and not another, how my heart yearns within me. Well, we're going to come back and we're going to uh, be looking at some of those words and some of the things that Job was trying to say a little bit later on. But for now, I think it's worthwhile just doing a really quick survey of where Job has got to. You may not be familiar with the story, so I'm going to tell you a little bit about it. Okay, Job, um, back in chapter 1, we learn that some raiders came from a neighboring country and stole his ox, his donkeys, uh, all his animals, and killed all those employed to look after them. Then, Then a freak storm comes and kills the sheep and his shepherds. Then 300 odd camels were killed and their protectors were murdered. And then, halfway through the chapter, some kind of hurricane arrives and kills all of his 10 children. If that's not enough, in chapter 2, Job, having seen suffering and devastation on his well being and his family and his friends, now sees agony himself. His skin is set on fire with sores. And his wife, who's meant to be his encourager, actually encourages him to curse God, to charge God with wrongdoing. And then, and then Job is joined by some friends. I don't know what you would say to a man or a person that had gone through that kind of suffering, how you would help them, how you'd pastor them. I think one of the most difficult parts of my job is finding myself in, in different areas of crisis and trying to work out what to say. Knowing that insensitive remarks can be devastating, can just heap on extra pain. 
and yet knowing that I've got to be there and say something. Well, his friends, um, they start pretty well, actually. They, they go to meet and to sympathize and comfort him. They want to help him. Um, but they just sit there together for a week and they say nothing because there's nothing to say when somebody's in that kind of state. And at the end of seven days, Job actually opens his own mouth and pours out cursing. He says, uh, basically, he says, why was I ever born? All this rubbish has happened to me. This is, I'm in such a bad way. All this has happened. Curse be the day when I was born. And then his friends start to speak. There's a guy called Eliphaz. And he says, consider who being innocent has ever perished. Do you see what he's saying? Who being innocent has ever perished? If you plow evil, you'll reap evil. He puts forward the notion that suffering is the result of sin, that prosperity is the result of being good. And that's simply not true. You see, unlike Job and his friends, we, the readers, know that this isn't the case. Because if you read through the early chapters of Job, we also see that there's a conversation happening between the Lord and Satan in the heavenly realms. And we learn that suffering is not a result of Job's sin. I don't know what stuff you're struggling with, but isn't this the question that normally comes when we face a crisis of suffering. What have I done to deserve this? What have I done to deserve this? And that's Job's, uh, seems to be Job's question. The underlying principle is that there's cause and effect at play. My sin is the cause and my suffering is the effect. But this is an insufficient grasp of the fallenness of the world. We can't give simplistic answers to the great questions of suffering. You can't tweet a response when it comes to suffering. Whatever our understanding of the answer to the question, why, the bottom line is this, innocent people do suffer. And when Eliphaz um, applies his theology, There's an insensitivity to it and a cruelty to it. And we see this today too. I don't know if you've ever heard this. Just have faith and everything will be okay. Just have faith and you'll be healed. That's cruel, isn't it? It makes us feel guilty when we're not healed because evidently we can't muster enough faith. Or it turns us against our community who are clearly sinning or not faithful enough to believe in my healing. Now don't get me wrong, I believe we're called to pray for healing and there are times when God miraculously heals people. I believe that we're called to be people of faith and sometimes sickness can be dealt with through prayer or repentance. But this wasn't the case for Job. Linking suffering and sin That directly is just too simplistic. It doesn't address suffering of the righteous or the prosperity of the wicked. So Job, in the midst of suffering, protests his innocence and his friends, well, they don't listen. 
One of them even says, the reason why your children died is because they were sinners. And you, Job, you're the cause of that because you're not pure. And it's at this point that we get to chapter 19. Just imagine if somebody had been saying that to you. Whatever your experience of suffering is, it's basically your fault. And then Job replies. Job has been tormented by his friends and he now pours out his anger. How long will you torment me and crush me with words? Do you see what he's saying to his friends? Give me a break. But the real question he faces is this. It's not where his friends stand, it's where God stands. The real question he faces is this. Is God for me or is God against me? Because if God is for me, then I'm going to get through this suffering somehow. If God is against me, then my despair may well be well grounded. And that's a question for us all. Do we believe that deep down God is for us? Is that what you believe? Whatever we experience, whatever our circumstances, do I believe that God is for me when I've had a terrible week at work, when relationships fall apart, when I've been maligned behind my back, when I'm sick, when my loved ones are sick, when there seems to be no hope? Is God for me? That's the bottom line. If God is for me, then ultimately nothing and no one can do any lasting harm to me. But if not, then I may as well sink into despair. He's grappling with the reality that whatever we read in the Bible about God loving us, caring for us, there are times when our emotions say, well, it just doesn't feel like that. You see, you and I, we probably know the Sunday school answer. We know that God is for us if we're in Christ. But Job reminds us that sometimes if we're honest, that's too glib a statement to make in an unthinking way. It's the question of the disciples on Good Friday and Easter Saturday. Hope is gone. Jesus is dead in the tomb. Is God really for us? Has he promised us life and hope and future or not? So Job, what does he do? He begins uh, by rebuking his friends. Their words have caused this grief. But the deepest pain isn't the suffering of of bankruptcy or bereavement or sickness. It's the pain of of his friends' accusations that God is against him. Job, verse 4 understands that he may have made mistakes. It's, if it's true that I've gone astray, my error remains my concern alone. He understands that he probably isn't sinless. He may have made mistakes. And then he goes on, verse 7. Though I cry, I've been wronged, I get no response. Though I call for help, there is no justice. Job kind of pictures himself like being a a man who's been mugged on the street. He cries out, I've been wronged. Do you see the injustice? But no one responds or helps. 
And the awful thing is that the person that we expect to respond and help is God. And for Job, it seems as though he's just not there. There is no justice. It's like being in a city under siege. And now there's a huge army set up around what he calls the frail tent of my life, verse 12. Everyone, including God, is out to get him. That's what it feels like for Job. But, but then it gets worse. Look at verse 13 onwards. God hasn't just attacked him, he's also isolated him. No human friends, no fellowship, no one to help. He's been struck off the Christmas card list. He's lost his Facebook friends. His brothers, his kinsmen, his guests, his servants are all against him. And I love this verse, even his breath is offensive to his wife. <laughs> yeah. That's the reality of the experience with which both Job and his friends agree on, actually. Job is suffering, God is attacking him, and God has isolated him. But the question remains, whose fault is it? Is it Job's, or is he a purely innocent bystander? The question is, is God for me or against me? Verse 21, have pity on me, my friends, have pity, for the hand of God has struck me. God has touched me. God has inflicted this on me. But do we think that Job has got that right? Is it really God who surrounds him ready to attack? Well, I think if we read through Job, the writer of Job has been clear that Job is wrong. Is it the Lord who stretches out his hand against Job? Well, if you turn back to chapter 1, there's this encounter between God and Satan. And Satan says to God, stretch out your hand against Job and touch out all that he, he has. But he doesn't. Instead, he says, the God, God says this, behold, all that Job has, all that he has is in your hand, the Lord says to Satan. You see, it's all in the hands of Satan, acting with the permission of the Lord and within the constraints given by him. But it was at Satan's hand, not God's, that these terrible things happen. So who's responsible for his suffering, his isolation and his life of misery? Well, it's Satan, acting with the permission of God, yes. But Job and his friends can't see this. For Job and his friends, this is the work of God. And the idea that there are real forces of evil at play in the world, forces with real influence, has got no place in their thinking. So abandoned by human help, Job longs to be proved right with God. How can he prove his innocence? He's soon going to die, and when he dies, he knows that his friends will continue to malign his reputation. So he cries for a vindication to be written, to give a final verdict beyond his death. Has he been righteous? Is he a genuine believer who trusted God for forgiveness and walked with him? 
Or has his suffering proved that he's an unforgiven sinner paying the penalty for his sin? Why do I go into this detail? Because without knowing the depth of the pain and the suffering and the emotional turmoil of this man, we can't begin to understand just what great news verse 25 is. I hope you see that. In all that pain, in all that distress, Job can still say this, I know, I know that my Redeemer lives. I know that my Redeemer in the end will stand upon the earth. I know that in my flesh I will see God. You see, tucked away in this book is the certainty of a Redeemer who's going to walk the earth. The certainty of resurrection and a bodily resurrection too. That's what keeps him going. There is a Redeemer. He will be redeemed from suffering and sin. He'll meet this Redeemer beyond the grave, which means that the future is light and life, not death and darkness at all. You see, at the point at which healing doesn't come, suffering continues. We're on the edge of death. Job, at this point, gets a glimmer of light and life rather than the darkness that surrounds him. So this is good news because Job realizes that despite what his friends say, despite his own experience and his emotions, God is still for him. I know that my Redeemer lives. The Redeemer is someone who's, who's tied to you, a relative, who, whose calling was to stand for you when you were wronged. He would sort out justice for you if somebody had done wrong to you. He would safeguard you. He would protect your inheritance. He's your champion, your vindicator. He's your protection and safety. Job is confident that he has such a redeemer, a protector, one who will prove his righteousness and who lives. That redeemer is none other than God himself. No one less than the eternal God can fulfill this role of a redeemer who lives. Job needs a redeemer to speak for him before God. And his Redeemer is God himself. God is both Redeemer and Judge. He protects and covers and comforts whilst being Judge of all. That's how we can be guilty sinners, but also righteous saints. Because God gave himself to die once for all upon a cross. That at that judgment we might be vindicated, redeemed, spoken of as not guilty. And this Redeemer will, in the end, stand upon the earth, verse 25, or literally upon the dust. You see, after Job's life has ended, this Redeemer will stand like a witness standing in court to bear testimony that Job is not guilty. Because like us who believe in Christ, we are deemed not guilty. Our sins and our guilt are covered by him. You're free to go, Jesus says. 
because of what I've done. And he will see this Redeemer God with his own eyes. Verse 26, after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I and not another. This is uh, difficult to translate, but it seems that Job expects this to happen after his death. After his skin has been destroyed, Job will come to see God face to face. Now that idea of seeing God face to face is all over the Bible and it indicates a very personal encounter with God. Do you see Job is saying, I won't believe that this idea of a monster God is the God who made this world. I know the God that I have always served and loved. I belong to him and his family. And in the end, even if it's after death, I will see him and he will vindicate me so that it will be publicly seen that I've been a real believer with a clear conscience. That's an extraordinary insight. Because what Job knew all those years ago, we now know with greater certainty. The sovereign redeemer who lives and will one day vindicate every believer and declare him or her justified from all sin. That's Jesus. So every believer can say, God is for me in Christ. He's not against me. He's for me. Jesus has stood on the earth. He did rise from death. He rose again. A bodily resurrection. And we too can be sure that we will be raised to bodily life if he lives in us. How can we be sure? Because there was once a believer whom the monster God attacked with the very worst of what he could throw at him. A blameless believer who experienced a terrible death that he didn't deserve and whom the Redeemer God vindicated publicly on the third day when he raised him from the dead. So no wonder this has become such a famous passage. I know that my Redeemer lives. It's become the centerpiece of Handel's Messiah. And it's understood as looking forward to the empty tomb. You see, Job is still materially destitute. He's still in the midst of physical pain. He's still lost his family. But his confidence of new life after death makes all the difference. The Lord is sovereign. He's not a monster. He's good and he's just and he's loving. There's more to life than this suffering. God is for us. And the resurrection is proof of it. That's why Easter is so important. Suffering is not the end. There is hope and a future. There's a guarantee that the Redeemer, the one who cares for you, who protects you, who comforts you, is alive. And when he comes to judge, he says, I've taken the punishment that you deserve. God is for us. That's fantastic news. Let's pray.
What then shall we say in response to all this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are our redeemer and that you live. And that one day our eyes will see you. We praise you for the insight that Job had. We give to you our suffering and we ask that you would help us to see that you are for us. Guaranteed by your cross and your resurrection. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.